oh man, I can get used to this. This is awesome. Hearing you sing is wonderful. Actually, having you this close where I can see faces uh, is that much better. The front row, I'll try to be careful with my uh, speaking, uh, but apart from that, so good to see you all. You know, sports teams have their, uh, their throwback jerseys, you know, their sort of retro uniforms that maybe they pull out for special occasions. Friend, this is like our throwback Sunday, right? This is like our own retro gathering where we gather back in here as this church did for, for nearly 50 years. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us, right, to give praise to God for his kindness to us, his graciousness to us. Um, because God, at the end of the day, right, he is the grand actor on the stage of history, right? History is about him. And it is about his glory being recognized and being revered by all. And so this morning, we have fundamentally come to give praise to God, to give thanks to God, to give thanks for the years of ministry the Lord has given us here, UBC in this community, and we pray that many more years that the Lord gives us in this community. And yet we recognize that God also uses means. And one of those means are the men and women he has gifted by his spirit. And friends, one such man uh, is H.D. McCarty, who served as UBC's longtime senior pastor, I think from 1965 up to 2004, and who for this special, special occasion has joined us in the back. And so I'd love for us just to take a moment and just give honor to our brother who served so faithfully for so many years. HD, we recognize that so many are here today because of how God chose to use you and how he even used you in bringing salvation to many are here today. So brother, it is so good to have you with us and we look forward to perhaps having you come and continue to worship with us, brother. All right, let's go to the Lord. Let's pray before we dive in to James 3. Oh Lord, it is your kindness that you have used us and prepared us as a body uh, to to know you and to know you through your word. That is how you have chosen to, spoke, to speak to us, rather, as you've spoken through your word. And Lord, we pray now as we come to your word that you might reveal to us glorious and marvelous things that we might revel in your law. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, I wonder if you could have absolutely anything in life, what would it be? So it's the sort of classic genie in a bottle question, right? Rub the bottle, you get one wish. Friends, I want you to take a moment now and think, what would be that one thing you would wish for? That one thing that you desperately long for? Right? Is it fortune? Is it fame? Is it maybe power or prestige? Is it, is it popularity? Maybe the perfect body? You know, maybe you would like, you know, sort of a, a mensa mind, or maybe a restored marriage, or a family, or, or even a new job. Or maybe right now, you would just take a slow vacation with a book on a warm beach. Right? Maybe that would serve your soul well this morning. But again, I wonder, how would you answer that question? 
And I pose that question, I, I recognize as a hypothetical, but it's actually not as hypothetical as you might think, for there was actually one man for whom that question wasn't hypothetical, but it was actual. There was one man who was offered anything, anything in the world, and he could have it. And friend, what did that man choose? That man chose wisdom. He chose wisdom. That man was King Solomon. We read in 1 Kings 3, verse 11, God says to him, because you, Solomon, have asked this, and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you wisdom, a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And God was so obviously pleased by Solomon's choice, so pleased that we actually read he just threw in riches and honor as well, right? Just added that to the list because he was wise enough to choose wisdom as that thing to be prized above all else. Now, I'm going to guess, and I'm not going to do this, but but if I were to ask for a show of hands and ask how many of you thought in your minds that the thing you desperately need this morning is wisdom, I'm going to guess it's not all of us. Right? I think that's probably a pretty safe guess. Right? We didn't answer as Solomon answered. But friends, the Bible covets wisdom. It implores to us that wisdom is actually worth everything we have. Right? Get wisdom, Proverbs 16, 6. Uh, 1616. Get wisdom, how much better it is than gold. Get understanding, it is preferable to silver. So friends, that just begs the question, right? What is wisdom? Why is wisdom so important? Where does it come from? What does it exactly even mean to be wise? And why does that matter this morning for you? And why should that matter for us as a congregation? And it's these questions that actually bring us right back to our study this morning in the book of James chapter 3, the book of James chapter 3. So I invite you to turn there now, and if you've got a Bible, go ahead, James 3. If you don't have a Bible, we did have some of those red uh, Bibles we have in the seat back over in the main hall. They're in the back here in the foyer if you would like one. Our text is on page 1012. And as you turn, right, James is one of the sort of punchiest and most practical and most powerful books right, in all of the Bible, and thus one of the most popular books in all the Bible. And he has been addressing, James has, these Jewish Christians, and he's been calling them back to a faith that works. For evidently James' audience, right, they're, they're sitting obediently, right, and they're nodding approvingly over Orthodox sermons, right? They're hearers of the word, the problem is, as James has noted, they're not what? They're not doers of the word, James 1.22. They're favoring the rich. They're ignoring the poor. They're evidently running their own mouths, as we saw last week. Indeed, their tongues have become weapons of mass destruction across the entire congregation. And that's leading to what? Significant quarrels and fights among them, which is where James is about to go in James 4. So what's the solution to that kind of discord and division that's been sown among them? Well, this is what James 3, 13 to 18 is going to help us see. So follow along as I read. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, well, it's clear that the pressing issue in our text is this issue of wisdom, right? Wisdom is the repeated refrain, right? What it is and and how we're to spot it. And so verse 13 serves as a kind of header for this section. And James right there defines wisdom for us. And then in the remaining verses, 14 to 18, he's going to contrast two different conceptions of wisdom. And he's going to present sort of carnal wisdom in verses 14 to 16 and contrast that with biblical wisdom in verses 17 to 18. And so, friends, that breakdown is just going to serve as our simple outline this morning. We're going to have wisdom defined And that's in verse 13. Verse 13, that header is wisdom defined. And then secondly, wisdom displayed. And that's where we're going to think about the two different kinds of wisdom, verses 14 to 18. I think the basic message that James is giving to us is that the test of true wisdom is not intellectual, but behavioral. So the test of true wisdoms, James says, is not intellectual, but behavioral. In other words, wisdom is evidenced in how you live, not simply in what you know. And that's not, friends, how we tend to think about wisdom, which is why James has to begin in verse 13, and he has to work to define it for us, right? Point one, wisdom defined, wisdom defined. And in verse 13, James really throws down the gauntlet, so to speak. Right? James is issuing a challenge in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, that word for understanding is actually a rare word that speaks to kind of professional knowledge, like we might use in, our, in English, like expert. That's the, that's the kind of notion it has. And evidently, there were some there within, their con- within those congregations that prided themselves on their own wisdom, on their special knowledge, on all of their expert opinions. It seems they've actually been very influenced, not by biblical notions of wisdom, but by Greek notions of wisdom. And remember, these Jewish Christians that James is writing to, where are they living? They're living in in Greek towns and cities, right, north of Jerusalem. And Greeks, what did they prize? They prized both intellectual ability and knowledge of divine secrets, And in this way, these Christians, well, they seem to have valued and learned to value much of those same things, such that they were increasingly marked by the world's notion of wisdom. And if you do a search, friends, and you just search like wisest people, right? Do Google search as I did. You're going to get, what do you get? Lists of the world's smartest people, right? People like Einstein, people like da Vinci. Because we tend to equate wisdom with IQ, That's what the world tends to do. It just equates wisdom with IQ. We think wise people are what? The people who know the most. Or maybe the people who have been educated in the best schools. Or maybe the people who have, as Cole reminded us, the most letters behind their name. 
like Dr. John Henderson, MS, PhD in counseling and clinical psychology. And for some reason, we're to think, like, that guy's wise, right? To these self-styled experts, <laughs> James says, right, time to raise your hands, time to come forward, time to step up to the mic, verse 13, and by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, that expression, let him show, could sound like a suggestion, but James is actually being a lot more provocative here. James is, is poking his finger in their chests. He's actually issuing a command, a command which actually I think the New Living Translation pulls out really well, captures well. To you, James says, who think of yourselves as so wise and so learned, prove it. That's what he's saying, prove it. And how are they to prove it? Right? Are they to like become a contestant on Jeopardy? Are they to sort of pull out trivial pursuit and parade around their knowledge? Or are they to, to compare ACT scores, right? Is that how they're to prove it? Well, no. That's not what he says. He says prove it by their good conduct, right? Through what? Through works done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, if some of these themes sound familiar, it's because the book opened, remember James 1.5, and he wrote, if any of you lacks wisdom, right, let him ask God. Or in James 1.21, he called them to put away all worldliness and what? Receive with meekness, hear that same word, meekness, the implanted word, James 1.21. So James right here is tying those two threads together and he's highlighting how true wisdom, well, it isn't about their words, right, and how clever and how sharp they are, right? It's actually, in fact, all about God's word, and about our own obedience to that word. So they're to prove it, right, not by what they know, but by how they live. That's how they prove they're wise. Because you see, nowhere does the Bible place value on knowledge that remains merely, right, cerebral or, cerebral or merely creedal, right? In the Bible, nothing is truly known until it's lived out. Nothing is truly known until it has come to shape our own lives. Which is why what hypocrisy is always a denial, not just in word, but in deed, right? In life. In other words, wisdom is not fundamentally shown in words, as James tells us, but what? But in deeds. But in deeds. And so my, my Christian friends, members of UBC, right, we need to especially remember this. Because we live in a culture that loves to do what? Loves to point to the experts. Loves to quote the experts. All of life increasingly, it seems, is being professionalized and credentialized, so to speak. And we can think that wisdom and understanding are, are something that we therefore can acquire in a classroom. Or maybe something that we can purchase with a degree. But friends, that misunderstands fundamentally what biblical wisdom is. In the Bible, wisdom is the lifelong process by which we conform ourselves to God's word. 
It's that process where we do that conforming to the word. So when the wise man says in Proverbs 4, 5, get wisdom, get insight. Right, when he says get wisdom, get insight, he's not saying go take some more 400 level courses and then go apply for grad school. Right, that's not what he's arguing. Because wisdom isn't fundamentally intellectual. What is it? It's behavioral. To put it another way, true wisdom, as we said, what? It's hearing and doing God's words. It's hearing and doing God's words. Which means if you've come this morning and you happen to have stepped in on this sort of anniversary service and, and you're not a Christian, you don't identify as a Christian, uh, wisdom, it begins by knowing God and by revering God. What the Bible refers to as the fear of the Lord. That's where wisdom actually begins. And the way we know God is through his word. Right? And it's through the word incarnate, right? the one whom God sent to deliver his words perfectly to us, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is himself the embodiment of this true wisdom. He not only knew the scriptures thoroughly and perfectly, but he also obeyed those scriptures perfectly. Right? He is the only one, Jesus is, who truly lived what he taught. We all stumble in that way. Right? In the same way we stumble with our tongues, Jesus didn't stumble once. He lived out perfectly every word he ever gave, which makes him what? Wisdom par excellence, right? So if you want to understand wisdom, you got to look to Jesus. You have to look to his words. You have to look to his own way of life. And he says wise people are fundamentally those who recognize they don't have the righteousness that God requires but Jesus has it for them. And so the truly wise person understands in humility that they have not lived as God intended them to live, but they have actually rebelled against this God in deep and significant ways. And yet in God's love and kindness, he sent his own son right, to live the lives we chose not to live, very self-consciously, and then to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners such that all those who would repent of their sins and see that they lack the wisdom. The wisdom of the world doesn't deliver. Right? They lack that, and they need the wisdom of God in Christ. By believing in him, repenting of their sins, they can be forgiven, and they be can begin to walk in the ways of the wise. And if you've come as a non-Christian, right, that is biblical wisdom, and that is the gospel that the Bible holds out to you, and any of us would love to talk with you about that. You might have a hard time getting out of here this morning, so we'll have ample opportunity to talk with you if you'd like to talk about that this morning. But Christian, I think there's a warning for us here as well, because you can have a PhD in systematic theology from a prestigious university and you can have another one who doesn't have a PhD like that. He's just got a GED. And James is saying it's not just what you know about God's word that makes you wise, right? It's how you live according to that word that makes you wise. So my Christian friend, you can love good theology. You can value good preaching. You can read all the right books. But if you're not living out this book, you're not wise. You're a fool. To the youth in the room, right? You can be memorizing scripture. You can be acing all of those sword drills, right? You can be at every Wednesday night youth gathering. You can have your hand up and you can have all the right answers to all the difficult questions. But if you're not honoring and obeying your parents, 
if you're being rude or cruel to siblings or to classmates, you're not wise. The Bible would say you're a fool. It means a church that can pride itself on having a deep and robust statement of faith, right? What they believe, but struggles to remember a single line of their church covenant, how they're to live. Well, that's not a wise church, according to James. That's quite a proud and foolish church. So on that basis, I wonder, my Christian friend, how many of you would now say you're wise? Friends, how wise are we as a church by these metrics? Now, to help us understand whether or not we're actually living as wise individuals, James gives us two pictures of wisdom, verses 14 to 18. And that brings us, secondly, to wisdom displayed. Wisdom displayed, verses 14 to 18. And he displays it first by picturing for us a kind of carnal wisdom in verses 14 to 16. And then he contrasts that in verses 17 to 18, This contrasts this carnal wisdom with biblical wisdom, with biblical wisdom. And for each of these two types of wisdom, carnal wisdom and biblical wisdom, what he does is he's going to talk about three categories. He's going to talk about the fount of each wisdom. So what's its source? What's its origin? The fount of it. Then he's going to talk about the features of it. Right? What does it look like? And then he's going to talk about the fruit of it. What does it produce? And so for you very eager note takers, point two has three subpoints. All right? The fount, the features, and the fruit of these two different types of wisdom. So first, the fount. The fount. And this is, right, where does wisdom come from? What's the origin? What's the source of true wisdom? And James is clear that when it comes to carnal wisdom... This bitter jealousy and selfish ambition he mentions in verse 15, he says this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Right? James is presenting us there with a kind of unholy trinity, right? Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Which is, by the way, if you know that common uh, Christian expression, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? It comes right here from, from James 3.15. That expression, world, the flesh, and the devil, comes right here. So when he speaks of carnal wisdom as being earthly, he's contrasting this earthly wisdom to heavenly wisdom. James is saying that this carnal wisdom is the wisdom of the world, Right? It's the wisdom that much of fallen humanity operates by. It's the wisdom that is based around what? The world of me. So if you know Pilgrim's Progress, right? There's that, there's that character, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Right? Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And he, he has lots of wonderful things to say. They're just not directed around God or God's word. And instead, with Mr. Worldly Wise Man and with, with us, the wisdom of this world tends to be based around what? Around me around my own personal ambition, around my kind of own self-centered advancement. So the wisdom of this world measures life, and it weighs life by how those scales affect me. So it's concerned with right, how I advance myself, how I can promote myself, how I can assert myself. And when looking at either conversations or circumstances in life, the question in the forefront of our minds is always, what can I get out of this? Right? How will this benefit me? Where life becomes a game of sort of personal politics, right? The driving question becomes, right, how is this going to affect my own poll numbers? How can I use this situation to my advantage? 
Or how can I spin this so this thing helps me or, or maybe hurts my adversary? And it's likely James may have in mind, back in 3, 1 to 12, some of the teachers, right? The way that they're using their tongues in this manner. But we noted it didn't just simply apply to them, right? Evidently, this way of thinking, right, from the teachers has spilled out into the rest of the congregation, such that it's what? Causing quarrels and fights, right? James 4, among the believers. Which is why he says this earthly wisdom is not just earthly, but what is it? It's, like it's unspiritual, and that just refers to the, the part of us where human feelings and, and human reason reign supreme. It's unspiritual in that it lacks the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is called, Ephesians 1.17, what? The, the spirit of wisdom. And it doesn't walk in the way of wisdom, right? Namely, Jesus Christ himself, which is why James says such earthly, such worldly, such fleshly wisdom isn't divine, but is instead, it's demonic, Right? That reminds us back of what he said in, in 3.6 when he said that the reason that our speech is satanic is because our own hearts are hellish. Right? They've been set on fire, he said, by hell, 3.6. And that points us forward to 4.7 when he calls them. He's going to call them to what? To resist the devil, right? preparing us for all of that. So my friends, when we live our lives around the guiding principle of how something affects me, when we evaluate our marriages around the question of whether or not this marriage serves me in this season or benefits me or is fun and pleasing to me. When we view our life and our relationships in light of what I get out of it and how I can benefit from it. Friends, when we view church that way, how does church exist to serve me, to promote me, right, to make much of me, when our social media presence is all geared to make much of us, where we become our kind of own Fifth Avenue advertising agencies, right, promoting ourselves, and when we organize our lives around that kind of wisdom, right, when jobs and careers just become a means to self-promotion, when we do that, James is saying we're living like demons. That wisdom, he says, comes straight from the pit of hell. And that can shock us, and that doesn't sit too well with us. Because the American dream, you can say, is kind of built around this idea of, of climbing the ladder and of, of moving ahead, of advancing upward, right? Assert yourself, promote yourself, even serve yourself. And social media is just fueled by all those notions. The problem is Jesus never says in the Gospels, you know what? Wisdom is asserting yourself, promoting yourself. Serving yourself, where is wisdom found? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. But instead of bearing our own crosses, right, what do we do? We run from them or we try to put our crosses on the lives of others. And James is saying this, verse 15, is not the wisdom that comes down from above. And so in contrast to that carnal wisdom, James is saying the fount of biblical wisdom is in contrast from above. He uses that expression from above in verse 15. He repeats it again in verse 17, the wisdom from above. So if carnal wisdom is earthly and that's its source, biblical wisdom is heavenly and that it comes down to us from God. Now James uses the same expression from above back in James 1.17, right? Where every good and perfect gift is what? It's from above. 
coming down, right, from the Father of lights. James is helping us see that biblical wisdom is not something that we can buy. It's not something we can simply acquire at a store or order online. It's a gift, and it's a gift that has to be given from above, which is why he implored us, James 1.5, to what? Pray for wisdom. For biblical wisdom, true wisdom is finally a gift of God. That's what Job recognizes, Job 12.13. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. So if you've got time this afternoon, I'd encourage you, go to Job 28. And Job 28 is beautiful on this front. Read that chapter, and it's clear. You can search the world for wisdom, and you can search all you want, and you won't find it because wisdom, the wisdom we need, it comes from God, and he must give it to us. So you see there are two wildly different kinds of wisdom operating in the world, right? One is heavenly and the other is earthly. One is spiritual and the other is unspiritual. One is from God, the other is from the devil. True wisdom, James says, comes from outside this world. It comes from above. It comes from God alone, which is why, again, we pray for it. Beg like Solomon that God would grant it. You know, as Dottie read from Proverbs 2.6, Right? The Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Right? And James remind us that God gives generously to all who ask in faith. So you won't ever get biblical wisdom simply by observing the world. You're not going to get this wisdom merely through intellectual effort or even by means of practical experience. The kind of biblical wisdom God grants Right, only comes from being with God and communing with God, communing with him through his word, communing in prayer, through the gathering of his saints as we are right now. When you prioritize that, you're on the path to biblical wisdom. But when you ignore that, you are walking down a diabolical path, friends, that leads to death. So that's all the fount, right? That's all the fount, that first subpoint. But what are the features of these two contrasting wisdoms that James presents? Right? What are the features of these two kinds of wisdom? How do we spot them? Well, James says carnal wisdom, if we're looking at that first, verse 14, well, that's marked by what? By bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Now, in the Bible, you may know that word jealousy can actually be used both positively and negatively. So positively, we know God is actually very jealous for the fame of his own name. Indeed, in Exodus 34, 14, God names himself the jealous one. And since God is perfectly good and wise, that jealousy God has for his name is entirely right and appropriate. And if he didn't have it and had it on something else, it would be horrifying. And Jesus, we know, was zealous and jealous for God's name, right? He turned over the temple and uh, the moneylenders that were there, right? We read in John 2, 17, for the zeal of God's house consumed him. And that word for zeal in John 2, 17 is the same word here for jealous. And so even like the Jewish zealots, right? Simon the zealot, if you know that zealot, that comes from that word zealous, right? They were zealous for God's name. They were devoted to God. But you know, that word jealous can be used also negatively, as in a kind of self-oriented, a kind of consuming desire to have what is not ours. 
And we know that's, in fact, the very kind of jealousy James has in mind because what precedes it? That word bitter. That word bitter, which showed up actually last week in James, earlier in James 3. Remember that word for salt water in verse 11, salt, is literally bitter, as in brackish water. It's foul water. It's the same word, which is why many modern translations uh, will translate the word jealousy here as envy to pick up the negative aspects to it, right? Bitter envy, which is when we think we deserve what someone else has, and then we resent that they have it and we don't have it. And that's what happens. We become bitter with envy. And selfish ambition, that word, like the Greeks, like Aristotle, used it actually to describe the kind of partisan zeal of, of factional, greedy politicians. And James is saying that kind of factional zeal that you find there in the political world, right? that's actually right there in the gathering of you as churches, That's what James says is happening. It's being expressed right in your gatherings. So friends, what might that look like for us? Well, I wonder this morning if you know what it's like to be envious of another. Maybe the gifts or the brains or the beauty that another has. Maybe all the letters behind their name. Maybe the spouses or children they have. Maybe their place of prominence in the church. Do you know what it's like to feel threatened by them? Even such that you come increasingly to resent them? You know, maybe there's a new kid in the youth group, or maybe there's a a new kid in your classroom, or maybe on your sports team, right? Someone is transferred in, or maybe even your team at work. And now that individual gets all the attention, and you know the bitterness that can well up in your own heart. Or maybe someone other than you was asked to lead that Bible study or to teach that class or to pray publicly when you were passed over and you were stung and thus you become what? You become envious of them. You know, one of the symptoms of envy, of envy is a lack of contentment in what God has given and how God is blessed. And so if you find yourself regularly struggling with a lack of contentment somewhere in there is the bitter root of envy in your own heart. And now we thought earlier about how selfish ambition is is rooted around this consuming concern, right, for our own position, our own dignity, our own rights, our own advancement. But, you know, publicly, this kind of selfish ambition James is talking about can exhibit itself in Ways in which we feel like we always need and have the right to air our opinion. Right? I recognize I'm talking to a Baptist church, right? We love our congregationalism. I have the right to air my opinion. And we have a fierce desire sometimes to voice that opinion, even to the exclusion of other opinions. Well, friends, I wonder if you know what that's like in your own heart to feel that deep need to be heard to implicitly assume that everyone else needs to hear what you have to say, right? To want to bring people, even to bend people to your own will. Because, of course, you know what's right. And if they don't listen to you, right, if the church doesn't listen to you, it's headed for what? Well, it's headed for certain disaster. James is saying, stop, hold the bus, reflect on that. Much of that is, in fact, rooted in a kind of selfish ambition in the heart. 
And James is saying in such situations, verse 14, do not boast and be false to the truth. That word for boast is actually just boast over. And it was used, it was used very colorfully, if you could say, of gladiators who would stand proudly over their dead and defeated foes, almost as a kind of gloating. And James is saying, y'all shouldn't be doing that. It's happening in your body. It shouldn't be happening. Whatever kind of factious partisan spirit is at work, whatever is leading you with your mouths to gloat over others, it needs to stop, he says. You're denying the truth. Which is why he says instead that the features of those who pursue not this carnal wisdom, but rather biblical wisdom, well, what does that wisdom look like? Verse 17, what's that wisdom that has its source from above? He says, verse 17, it is first pure. It's peaceable, it's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, there are numerous connections here to to Paul, and when he speaks of the fruits of the Spirit, right, in Galatians 5, he'll highlight, right, fruit. We have that same idea, and he'll talk about peace, and he'll talk about gentleness, etc. But friends, so many of these things were also emphasized by Jesus, So some of you who were at the men's retreat over the last two days, you might be thinking right now, man, this sounds a lot like the Beatitudes, right? Matthew chapter 5 that that John Brown was helping us work through, right? Blessed are the meek, right, or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the what? The pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are what? The peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. James is saying if you want to live a truly wise life, a biblical life, you want that kind of hashtag blessed life. If that's what you want, he's saying live like this. Be marked by these things. Prioritize these things in your life. Use these things as a prayer guide that God would build them and grow them in you. The one who is not brash and aggressive, but, but gentle and promotes peace amongst others. People who, who are not proud, but reasonable, impartial, and that what? They don't show favoritism, as he talked about earlier in chapter 2. That they're sincere, that they mean what they say and say what they mean, that they live out their faith, right? As he says in 2.14 through 26. And what's remarkable, friends, is that James wonderfully modeled what he actually preached. So two of the basic accounts we get of Jesus' brother James in the book of Acts are of him playing the role of this gentle and wise peacemaker, which given how he's poking at us in the letter may surprise us. But friends, in that he models a lot of Paul, right? Because It's there in Acts 15, right? During the Jerusalem council, when the church was actually about to split over the issue of circumcision, right? Do you have to first become a Jew in order to become a Christian? And James steps into that melee, and he speaks words of truth that bring peace to all sides. Or in Acts 21, when Paul's coming to Jerusalem, and there's a lot of skeptical Jews uh, who have become Christians, and they're not so clear about this Paul character. What does he do? He encourages them to welcome and to receive Paul in Acts 21. Right? James practiced what he preached. Friends, do you? Right? Do we? Because what happens if we don't? Right? We've thought about the fount. We've thought about the features. Now, thirdly, what's the fruit 
of two different kinds of wisdom. What's the fruit if we fail to live this way? Well, James says it isn't pretty, verse 16. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be what, he says? Disorder and every vile practice. So that word from disorder comes again from the political world. It's fascinating how James is using a lot of Greek phrases that would have been a little less common in Jewish culture, but really common in Greek culture. I think even in doing that, he's borrowing the language of the world and saying, see how you're marked by the world? Right? And in this way, this language is used of, like, of rebellion, of anarchy in Greek cities. And he's saying that exists when you follow the wisdom of the world. So when we're led by the world's guiding light, he's saying what results is rebellion. Right? Members taking up arms, so to speak, right? warring factions in the church against one another, such that the church and such that Christian relationships, well, it all just becomes this chaotic, bloody battlefield. You see, disorder and disunity in churches, friends, never be deceived into thinking that disorder and disunity in churches is merely uh, situational. Never be deceived into thinking it is merely situational, right? It is deeply spiritual when you have disorder and disunity in churches, right? Where there is quarreling and strife, at the root is what? Jealousy, selfish ambition. People have agendas. They harbor grudges. They turn their own preferences. They make them priorities. And then they make them deeply personal and about them, such that if you question them, you're questioning them, They dig their heels in, right? Everything just becomes a political fight. It's not only what splits churches, but friends, that kind of pride is what destroys a church's witness to the watching world. Friends, pride is nothing to be proud of. Whereas the fruit of biblical wisdom, verse 18, is what? A harvest of righteousness and peace. And it's clear these congregations lacked peace. And he's about to go there in chapter four. And so members of UBC just good for us to reflect for a moment because, you know, this church has known some seasons of discord and division in the past, seasons of factionalism where parties kind of formed and people took sides, and and sadly, friends, few churches are immune to that. In fact, if you don't know, UBC was actually birthed in that kind of division. There was a time in the 1950s and the early 50s where there was a kind of factionalism at First Baptist Fayetteville. And it grew to such a point where, in fact, there was this envy and selfish ambition James talks about. And it literally came to blows where you had bloodied faces and bruised knuckles. And some of them left that church and formed this church. But it's God's kindness to us, right? Even in the midst of that great division, he still in his beautiful and wonderful providence can work good out of such evil. Now, I feel like we're in a season of relative peace as a congregation. I've thought about that. I've been reflecting on that for the last six or eight weeks. I praise God for, I think, that peace we largely know as a body where we have shared unity and a a kind of shared appreciation for the work of the gospel among us. And friends, Satan would like nothing more than to destroy that peace, to upset that unity. And James is saying it begins right here in our own hearts. Because envy and self-centered ambition is at the heart of all worldly wisdom, and that's demonic. And if we give in to it, and if we feed it, and we let it grow and fester in our hearts, 
then it will one day kill what we have worked so hard to cultivate and to build into as a church family. So if we're going to know continued peace and unity as a church family, if we're going to celebrate anniversaries like this, if the Lord tarries years from now, if we're going to know peace in our own homes, if we're going to know peace in our marriages and, and peace in our relationships, it begins, James says, with the right understanding of wisdom. Wealth can't provide it. Fame can't provide it. Power can't provide it. Right? And not the kind of carnal wisdom that the world has to offer. Not the kind of wisdom you can acquire through intellectual effort. Not through practical experience. Not the kind of wisdom that has us at the center where everything in life becomes a kind of what platform to promote me and where other people become nothing other but objects in the service of the self. The kind of biblical wisdom, though, James says, that comes from being with God, from delighting in God, from fearing God. Because true wisdom is not evidenced in what you know, but in how you live. Right? He's saying it's not creedal, not merely intellectual, it's behavioral. It's worked out in our lives. It is hearing and doing God's word. That is wisdom. And you know, friends, there will come a day when those whom the world thinks are most wise in this world will stand before God and realize they're fools. And there will come a day when those thought of as the greatest fools in this life will be seen for all of their wisdom. Friend, on that day, what will God have to say about you? Even today, right now, what would he have to say about you? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for the way in which James continues to keep his sort of finger pressed into our chests. And he is pushing us to reflect on whether or not we are finally shaped and being transformed right, by the renewal of our minds according to your word or whether or not we are being transformed by the world around us. And God, we pray that you would drive these truths deep into our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.